What is up, table friends? How are y'all? That's what I like to hear. Can I just say something? I was encouraged by you guys singing to me. Anybody else felt that way? You're like super encouraged. I mean, I could just hear it. Just you guys are like, man, don't worry, Doug, you're no longer a slave. I need to hear that today, okay? I needed to hear uh, the Lord's Prayer sung over and over and over again. I needed your encouragement. I love gathering with y'all on Tuesday nights and y'all just encouraging me selfishly by your singing. And so I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for being willing to lean in and to praise Jesus uh, in front of one another and specifically just in a completely selfish, egocentric way. Thank you for encouraging me here today. I know many of you guys actually feel that way, so it's not just me. So this is super awesome. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to uh, Deuteronomy, the last chapter, chapter 34. We're going to read the whole chapter of Deuteronomy. If you don't know where that is, it's, uh, well, you can just search it because you probably have it on your phone, or you can just Google search it and find it. But if you have the hard Bibles, right, just open up, and it's the last chapter of Deuteronomy, which is in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's where we're going to be. Uh, if you're first time with us or first time in a while, welcome back. Glad you're here. Welcome. We are in the midst of a summer-long message series called Storylines. And the basic idea we want to get across, what we hope you guys see in your own discipleship, uh, is that you learn to see the story of God meet the story of your life. That you no longer see the Bible as just this abstract thing that's over here, but as you begin to read the Bible, you begin to go, hey, this kind of looks like my life. Hey, this character right here, uh, he or she seems to struggle with the things I seem to struggle with. This, this is not just some ancient text. This is actually text that's relevant for me today in 2019. And today's figure we're going to be looking at, or character we're going to be looking at, is this person uh, called Moses. Now, you may have heard of Moses before. You may have seen uh, the Ten Commandments, or you may have seen uh, the Prince of Egypt, the kind of, you know, animated version of the Ten Commandments, or maybe you've read through the Old Testament before. But we're going to be looking at the life of Moses, and importantly, what God has to say to us about his life, specifically the end of his life and what he can tell us at the end of his life. But to set all this up, I, I want to talk about <clears throat> something else. I want to talk about Legos. Um, any of you guys play with Legos growing up? Do we have people who are, okay, that's a fair amount of you guys. Uh, any of you who are just opposed to Legos, you think it's the weirdest thing ever? That's okay. It's a safe space to be like, I'm anti-Lego. Okay. Patience, appreciate you right there, uh, right? Uh, Patience has probably stepped on them before, and this is like, I'm out. I'm out on Legos. You know that? You've stepped on a Lego. You're just like, Legos are the best. Ow! Barefooted, and you're just like, they're the worst, and you want to burn them. Um, well, I kind of had a, a very similar situation over Memorial Day weekend. My kids love Legos. We have this old kind of family heirloom green kind of jar thing. Uh, maybe it's bigger than a jar. Maybe it's a pot. It's made of glass. I don't, I don't know what it's called. It's a thing, right? And it's like this big, and we put the Legos in it, just loose into the little Lego jar upstairs in our little playroom area for our kids. So my kids are outside. They're in the pool. They're like going through the sprinklers. It's 97 million degrees outside. And so we're like, hey, let's put a sun limit on the kids and have them come inside. So they finally came inside, and they took baths, and they dried off, and I said, go upstairs and go play. So I hear them go upstairs, and the first thing my kids do when they go upstairs is they pick up the jar, and I hear them go, all over the floor, right? I was like, oh, my God, okay. So anyway, so I decide to go upstairs and, you know, play with them uh, and help them clean that up, right? And my daughter, as I get upstairs, she looks at me, and she goes, hey, Dad, hold up. What if we organized all the Legos according to color? 
I said, okay, you have all the time in the world to play, and this is what you want to do? She goes, yeah, it'd be really fun to organize these things and, and to color, color groups. So I look at my son, and I'm like, he's, he's kind of a rascal. Maybe he'll agree with me. Maybe I can get him on my side. I'm like, James, is this what you want to do? And he's like, that sounds fun. <laughs> so for 45 minutes, we are, this piece, is it red or is it maroon? I don't know. Okay. Is this yellow or buttercream? I don't know, right? For 45 minutes, and my daughter's just having the best time. And my son is like, this is cool colors. And so we get it all. 45 minutes, we get them all separated into their little piles. And then my daughter goes, what if we get Ziploc bags? Put them all into Ziploc bags, label them, and then put the Ziploc bags into the container. That'll be so much fun, right? So she runs downstairs and she gets Ziploc bags and she comes up and that's what she does. And then when she's done, she holds up her little trophy, proud. Look, dad, I've organized all the Legos and I've kept them separated. So it'll be so much easier to clean up now. And my wife, who is very organized, is looking at me like paternity test, right? <laughs> that's me. I guess it's maternity test at this point. Yeah, that's, those are my genes right there. And I'm just like, I cannot believe my kids love Legos so much that they would be willing to spend 45 minutes organizing them. This is crazy. Well, so we did that. And then, of course, once you do that, what do you have to do? You have to watch the Lego movie, right? Now, I don't know if you guys, have y'all seen the Lego movie? Okay, clap if you haven't seen the Lego movie. Okay, what's wrong with you people? The Lego movie is awesome. You should go see that. Seriously. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry to call you out like that. No, seriously, Lego movie is really interesting. Maybe you're not into Legos, but my family is into the Lego movie. More so Lego 1, not so much Lego 2, although we, we like the Lego 2, but kind of up here, this is one of the creations from the Lego movie 2 here. It's the uh, triple couch uh, that Emmett builds, and we've got the little kind of destroyer person here and all that stuff. Well, uh, in the Lego movie, if you've seen it, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to give you some plot details. So if you still haven't seen Lego Movie 1 and you want to, now's the time to leave and just like, la, 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 la. Okay, cool. <clears throat> so in this film, you're, you see the Lego characters, they're playing, and the, the villain in this film is called Lord Business, and he's played by Will Ferrell. And he has this machine called the Craggle which is going to squirt all this stuff all over the Legos, and it's going to make them permanent on the Lego board. And what you come to realize in the process of the narrative is that Craggle is actually really crazy glue. It's this stuff right here, okay? Crazy glue. It's just the, the Z has been kind of, Z and Y have been knocked off, and the uh, U and E have been knocked off. So it looks like it says Craggle, so that's why they call it Craggle. But the Craggle is really crazy glue. And you realize that Lord Business is actually Will Ferrell, the adult, and he is the dad of this kid. The whole narrative of the Lego movie is this kid's mind as he's playing with his Legos in the downstairs basement. And what you come to realize in the process is it's, they're actually not his Legos. They're his dad's Legos. And he's been playing with his dad's Legos and, like, tearing down some of the structures that his dad had built and building back up. And dad comes home and catches the son playing with all his Legos. And dad freaks out. It starts to rebuild everything and uses crazy glue to spray it on there and make it permanent. Uh, you, any of you guys have the friends who play Lego and you go over to their house and they're like, hey, I got the new Millennium Falcon. And you're like, cool. And you want to take it apart and put it back together. And you like take off one thing and that friend goes, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Like, you know who I'm talking about? Like the people who are maybe a little too serious about their toys. It's a, it's a kissing cousin or that's an old East Texas phrase, it's a, it's a tangent to the person who collects action figures, but not to play with them, just to store them on their shelves. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Some of you here are that way, and I'm not judging you. I'm just saying we all know we have those friends, right? Well, Will Ferrell is like, no, 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 no. These are my toy, or these are not toys. These are models. This is something I've taken years painstaking to construct. And so he takes the crazy glue, and he sprays it all over the Legos so that they stay permanent, right? He takes it, and he's just like, and that's the whole tension of the story because the son is looking at the dad going, why do we have this if not to play with them? And the dad's saying, they are perfect as they are. I want them to be permanent always. And I think about that as I read the story of Moses. Because Moses is somebody who grows up in great uncertainty. And he is looking for something that is permanent always in the whole of his life. Does that sound like you? Have you ever been in anything you're a part of, in any relationship, in any area, in any job, someone who is grasping for certainty and you just wish in the the depths of your soul that you could just make this thing permanent always? I was thinking about this this morning uh, because this morning, very early in the morning, my son James came in at like 2 in the morning, crawled into our bed, and then started snoring. Like it's not bad enough that he's in our bed, but now he's snoring. And this morning I woke up about, I mean, he'd been in our bed a couple hours. I woke up about six to go ride my bike. And I looked over at my son, my, my precious, handsome son is just right there, right? And he's asleep and he's perfect. And he's that great age where he's just precocious enough to be fun, but he's not so uh, knuckleheadish to just be a jerk to me all the time. Like when he hits me, it doesn't hurt yet, right? You know what I'm talking about? And so I'm getting up, I'm getting ready to go bike, and I look at my son, I'm like, oh, just God, can you not let him grow anymore? I just want him to be this age forever. And in my mind, I see myself as Will Ferrell, and I'm grabbing the crazy glue, and I'm like, maybe I can keep him three forever, right? Because I love him, and I love this relationship, and it's okay for me to long for him to stay that way. It's another thing for me to now use all power in my control to try to keep him three years old forever. If I was a dad who did that, you guys would lock me up because I would be a crazy person, right? I think us, all of us, we long for permanence. We want something to just stay the way it was. Some of us, we have orientation of time towards the past, and we go, man, I long for yesterday. I wish I could have yesterday. I wish my high school friends could just stay together and we could be this. I wish my college friends could just stay together and we could be this way always. I wish the life group I'm in right now would just stay this way always. I wish things would never change. Can we just make everything permanent always? And this is what Moses does. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up. And let me just give you a little bit of context here about the life of Moses if you don't remember. Keep in mind, Moses is somebody who doesn't have certainty. Uh, Especially early on, Moses is adopted. And about the age of three, goes to live with the Egyptians. And so he has no certainty with his family. His life is just up in the air. And on top of that, he's a Hebrew who's adopted by Egyptians, so now he has a cross-cultural situation going on. And so he doesn't fit in one culture. He's too brown-skinned for his Egyptian culture. But then when he goes to see his Hebrew friends, he's too Egyptian for them, and he feels caught between culture, and there's no certainty. Anybody experience that living in Orlando? Okay, I see some of our Latin American friends raising their hands. Yeah, right? You feel like you don't have a place. Well, this is Moses. No Certainty. Man, if only I could have some permanence in this world. Moses grows up in the city. 
in Egypt, and at some point he kills somebody and buries, it just says in the Bible, he killed this guy and buried him in the sand. And then the next day he was talking to some people. Like it was just on a Tuesday, Moses killed somebody and buried him in the sand. Then on Wednesday, he was going to Starbucks and saw some people and they were like, what are you going to kill us too and burying us in the sand? And he freaks out and then he runs out of the city into the desert. And that's where he is for a while. And now he's a city boy who's grown up in the city living in the desert. He doesn't know the ways. He doesn't know the customs, right? He, he's looking for for the uh, like public bathroom somewhere in the desert and there isn't one and he's like, I don't know what to do. I don't even know how to go to the bathroom. It's great uncertainty until he finds this family, this priest and his family who are living in the desert and he kind of joins their little family. He marries the, the high priest's daughter. He learns to be a shepherd. Now he has a trade. Now he has a career. And just when things get kind of certain for him and he knows who he is and his family, he finds his way up onto this mountain, and he sees this burning bush. There is nothing more uncertain and more unsettling than a bush that is on fire perpetually and not uh, disintegrating, right? It's, it's just disorienting for him. And then the, the bush says, I'm God. And he's like, oh, okay, this is, uh, this is perplexing. And God says, I have a mission for you. And now Moses is given this extra calling that's different than the calling he had. And all Moses can do is come up with his excuses. He's like, well, but I'm not very good at talking. And God says, I'll give you your brother Aaron who will talk for you. He's like, well, but what if they don't believe that I know you? And he says, here's my divine name. I am certain. I am. And he goes, okay. Well, but what if they don't really believe I'm a prophet? Well, you have a stick in your hand. Just throw it on the ground. It'll turn to a snake. Everyone will know the deal. And Moses is like, oh, my goodness. And God says, go. And now Moses, this city boy who's now been in the desert for a while, is taking his family and going back into this city that has changed over the years. And he is very uncertain about this whole thing. And what's more, he has to go before Pharaoh. And he has to tell the Pharaoh, hey, God told me to tell you to let my people go. And Pharaoh is like, I don't want to do that. And it's a very uncertain, unnerving task that is ahead of him. And finally, after a series of 10 miracles, Pharaoh says, take your people and go. And Moses now has to lead this whole people group out of the city, into the desert. That is a very uncertain situation. And on the way, there is a pillar of, of fire that is following him, which is very uncertain and unnerving. And then he gets to the Red Sea. And he's like, oh, I don't know what to do here. There's no Google Maps through this. And so God says, raise your staff. And he does, and the water splits. And they walk across on dry land. And he's doing the whole like, oh, oh, thing right there. And finally, the last person crosses. And Pharaoh is coming after him. And he's like, I don't know what to do here. It's very uncertain. And God closes the waters and kills all of Pharaoh's army. And the people are safe. And now he has the task ahead of him for walking in the, <coughs> in the desert for 40 years. Sorry, I'm coughing here. <coughs> because it's so amazing. Moses, in his life, at about age 80, has lived with great uncertainty. But before him, he has this amazing opportunity. He is walking in the desert, pastoring these people for 40 years. And on the first go-around, he's like, I'm not sure what I'm doing. But he makes the second a loop there, lap there, and he goes, okay, now I know what I'm doing a little more. And the third lap, he's like, okay, I got this down. And somewhere along the way, Moses gets a little bit cocky. He gets a little bit confident in what he's doing. He becomes increasingly certain about what it means to be a pastor over these people in this season of life. And Moses, for whatever reason, stops listening to God as much. Early on, in maybe the first loop around the desert, uh, the people are crying out for water. 
And so they come to this rock, and God tells Moses, Moses, take your staff and strike the rock, and water will come out. And so Moses strikes the rock, and water comes out. And he's like, oh, this is an ingenious way to get water. Like, this is amazing. Like, i gotta, I got to file this away in my little shepherd book here to just for next time, right? And then on the next time he comes around, now Moses is an older man. He's a wiser shepherd. He's lived in a great deal of certainty. He knows what he's doing. He's got the skills. And he comes to this rock a second time, and the people want water. And in Numbers chapter 20, it says this, verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen now, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Now, God has just told him, Moses, if you want water out of this rock, I want you to speak to the rock and water will come out. Now, this is different than the last time for Moses. But Moses is certain in what he's doing. And so he's like, he kind of has this moment. Have you ever had one of these moments where maybe a boss tells you something or maybe you have like a friend situation and they try to give you advice and there's a little bit of bristling that goes on because you kind of know what you're doing. It's like that time you're, I I don't know, you're you're hanging something on the wall with like thumbtacks and they're like, are you pushing the thumbtack in? And you just kind of, as you're placing the thumbtack into the thing, look over to that person, and you have this thought form in your brain, I am a grown man. I am a grown woman. I know what I'm doing. You just kind of back off with that mess. I don't need you giving me instructions here. I am a grown human being who has been living on this earth for a while, and I know what I'm doing. And this is basically the attitude that Moses has. He calls the people rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Verse 11. Then Moses raised his, hand in a sti- uh, uh, raised his hand and struck the rock twice with his staff so that a great amount of water gushed out and the congregation and their livestock were able to drink. <clears throat> now, you go, okay, this is wise leadership. Moses knows what he's doing. He's a seasoned vet. On this lap around the wilderness, Moses now is certain in what he's doing. Except here's the problem. God didn't tell him to strike the rock. God told him to speak to the rock so that water would come out. And furthermore, Moses didn't strike the rock once. He struck it twice. Now, I was looking into this because I thought it would be really odd that not only would Moses disobey God, but that he would strike the rock twice when in a previous time he struck the rock rock once. Now, what does this mean? Probably what this means is that Moses struck the rock multiple times. In other words, Moses was in the habit of striking rocks by this point. He was saying, I know how to get water out of a rock, Jesus. I'm a grown man. I know what I'm doing. And God's like, speak to the rock. He's like, Jesus, mm -mm, mm-mm, no, Yahweh, mm mm-mm. Listen, you be over there with your burning bush self. I got this rock thing under control. I got it on lockdown. I got the rock on lockdown. You stay over there. I'll be over here and lead these people. I'm a grown man. I know what I'm doing. Boom, boom. The, the twice indicates that this is a pattern. This is not a one-time thing. Moses has gotten to a point in his advanced years where he thinks he knows what to do because he heard from God yesterday, and he thinks yesterday is good enough forever. He has found permanence always. And this is what God says. In verse 12 of Numbers 20, But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me, to show my holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses stopped listening to God. He stopped relying on faith. 
He said, I'm a grown man, and I know what I'm doing. Does this sound like anybody here today? Have you ever had a moment in anything in your life, in any role you've ever played, where you stopped listening to God because you heard him yesterday, and you figured that was good enough forever, always? Well, Deuteronomy 34. Between that moment in Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 34, Moses matures a little bit more. He's about 120, comes to the end of his life. And this is what Moses probably writes or someone who's close to Moses writes about his life. And I think our lesson and our principle comes from this passage here in verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, all Nephtali, the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, and the Negev, which is the southern part, and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. Now, you hear all this, and you're like, Doug, I have no picture of what this is. Uh, only Isaac's been to Israel here. I don't, I don't know, man. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. Only Isaac and Jonathan Espinel have been to Israel slash Jordan. Uh, so what is this? So I, I Google searched this because I wanted to help us out. I said, Israel laid over Florida. I just want to see what the comparison was, and this is what came up on Google, okay? So what's really interesting about this, if actually this is Florida overlaid over Israel, is that Jerusalem is right where Orlando is, uh, which I think is fitting because this is the holy city. Uh, and so by this, let me just give you kind of some dimensions. Uh, if Orlando is Jerusalem, then Jericho, where the, the people of God enter, would be UCF's campus, so that's the walk from Jericho to actually the city of, of uh, Jerusalem, Orlando. And the Negev, the lowest point, actually, uh, yeah, the Negev would be in Naples, Florida. Okay, the lowest point of Israel is in Naples, Florida. And the highest point of Israel would be at like Daytona Beach area. Okay, so that's Israel. That's the land that, they, that, that Moses would have seen. He would have seen all of that land there, right? And so God is showing him this, saying this is the promised land, Florida. Right? And look at the crown jewel of Florida, Orlando, right? Home of the Mouse and Universal Studios and Lockheed Martin and medical community and tons and tons of my holiest people, Latin Americans, right? All here in the promised land, right? That holy tribe and the holy tribe of Caribbean folk and the holy tribe of Puerto Ricans. And then occasionally some European white people who come there as well, right? Orlando, Jerusalem, Moses, this is, this is it. This is what you have worked so hard for. God is being gracious to Moses at this point. Notice what he says in the next verse. Verse 4, and Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. God's being gracious to him. Yes, you stopped being a good leader. I can't let bad leaders lead my people into the promised land of Orlando. I can't let Moses, you lead them into the promised land of Florida. I cannot let you do that, but because I love you by my grace, I'm going to let you see what you cannot experience in life. And it says, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial today. It's probably Kissimmee. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Kissimmee, all you Kissimmee folk here. So what is the big idea here? What do we get from Moses? 
What's the one principle that it seems like, what, what do I think Moses would tell us today if he could stand right here? I think it would be this principle right here, and it's on your screen. Don't misunderstand your role now with your role always. Don't confuse your role today with your role tomorrow. And God's economy and his sovereignty over everything. Remember, God is the hero of the story. Even your story, God is the hero over your story. And your role is a supporting role in the story of your life. And in different seasons and in different times, God's going to invite you to step into this role or that role, into this relationship, into that relationship, into this job, into that job, into this ministry, into that ministry. But don't be like Moses and misunderstand that your role right now is going to be your role forever. Your role always. Moses thought, I'm the shepherd of these people. They're going to the promised land. By golly, I'm going to lead them in there with... uh, Guns a-blazing and horses neighing and all fanfare there is. And God said, nope, I've got that for someone else. Don't confuse or don't misunderstand your role now with your role always. So what does that look like for us? How does this principle look like for us? Well, let's think about it in three contexts. In ministry, in romantic lives, uh, and in family. In ministry. Uh, In ministry... What do we do? Hey, I'm leading this life group. This life group is going to be forever. This, finally, I have found a community of people who I get and who get me. God's going to make this around forever. We're going to grow old together. We're going to be in each other's weddings. It's going to be the best thing ever. This is amazing. And then because you live in Orlando where people only live for three years and then they move along, somebody inevitably leaves your life group and you get hurt and offended. And you're like, what? You are going to be a bridesmaid my Wedding, why would you leave me? Why would you leave us? Do you hate us? Do you hate Jesus, right? Okay, I see how it is. Enjoy Tampa. Yeah, with the Oxford Exchange. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, okay, enjoy Miami. Oh, you want to go to Atlanta? Okay. Well, I hope you hate the cold, right? People leave your ministry and you're like, why am I a bad leader? What did I do? Did I, was I, I don't, I, hey, ma'am, listen, in ministry, don't confuse your role now with your role always. Some people come in, some people go, God brings them in, God moves them along. It would be wrong to think just because I have this great team that we go on mission trips together, just because I have this great group of friends that we do ministry together, that this is going to be around for always. Enjoy your today, but understand your role may not be forever. Or think about it in romantic relationships. You go on a first date, you have the good first date. You guys know what the first good date is, right? You go to the coffee shop because coffee is a good place to go on a first date. It's cheap. It's low maintenance, low risk, right? You buy a $5 cup of coffee. If it's bad, you're out, right? But if it's good, you buy a second $5 cup of coffee, right? It's cost effective. It's a small table. It's sentiment. You get to know one another, and you know you're having the good first date because you look across the table, and instead of looking on Instagram, he's actually looking in your eyeballs and doing this thing, right? And she, instead of like, uh, you know, running to the bathroom to do her makeup, which is really code for her calling her friends to come pick her up or seeing if Uber is cheap at this point of night, right? Uh, Instead of doing that, she's actually looking at you eyeball to eyeball. She might be twirling with her hair. She might be, you know, just kind of doing this thing right here. I don't know. I don't know how girls operate today. 
day. I'm just saying in 2000 when I was dating my wife, that's how she operated. Uh, but you know, you have that good first date and you go home and you talk to your friends and they talk to you and you're like, is this the one? I think so, right? You're already on Pinterest, like creating your wedding board. I'm talking about the guys, obviously, right? And... Uh, <laughs> You have your thing going and you're like this, hey, this was really good today, it's gonna be forever. Guys, girls, don't confuse your role right now with your role always. And I'll push this a little bit further. You get married and you think, oh, great, this is permanent. Yeah, the crazy glue is on right there, I got this thing. And you're in your 20s and then in your 30s and then in your 40s and then in your 50s and things are great. And in your 60s and health concerns kick in and then you're in your 70s and health concerns kick in hard. And then in your 80s, one of you dies. And you're a believer living in the suburbs with your grandkids and you're wondering around, why did he die? Why did God take him away? This was my life. This was my thing. Why did that happen? And I'm trying to tell you now, listen, don't confuse your role right now with your role always. Or maybe in parenting, right? Now, some of you may have just graduated from high school or just graduated from college, and let's just, let's just put this on the reverse, right? You got parents, and your parents call you, and they're like, do you have a job yet? You're like, I, I literally just graduated from college, like, yesterday. Can you give me maybe a week to just kind of catch my breath? Okay, college is not easy. Let's go. Uh, maybe you're in your mid-20s. Do you have a husband yet? And you're like, oh, my goodness, mom, like, chill out, right? They are, like, following you on Find My iPhone and beeping you whenever they can't get a hold of you. Like, they send you the text, and you don't respond immediately because you're in the Publix getting the pub sub and the other things. And then you go, ding, 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 ding. You're like, what's going on? And mom has zinged you because she wanted to know your exact GPS location right now. And you're like, mom, I'm 27 years old. Back off. I have a job. I have a career. I'm a grown woman. You, I got this, mom, right? And they're constantly texting you and breathing down your neck. And, and it's like they're still trying to dictate your life as if you're a toddler. And you're looking at them going, hey, listen, I'm not a kid anymore. You guys had those moments with your parents? I'm not a kid anymore. You need to boundary and you need to back off here. What's going on? Your parents probably did not get the memo that their role when you were a toddler is going to change. And that role is not always. Parents want to put crazy glue on their kids and keep them. And I'm just telling you this because one day you're going to be a parent. And you're going to think, oh, my son, he's sleeping. Maybe if I can just put this crazy glue on him, he'll just stay that way forever. And that would be child abuse. And you would have to go to jail. Don't do that. Listen, your role now as a parent is going to change. Enjoy it today because tomorrow it may be a little bit different. And this is the thing we learned from Moses. So what do we need to do in light of this? Listen to what the writer of Deuteronomy writes at the very end, verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Nice job. Uh, his eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. I don't know what that means. I'm just thinking Moses was like a silver fox into his 120s. His <laughs> wife was probably really happy. That's just all I'm saying. Like, he's got good eyes, vigor. We know what that means. Uh, Moses was doing all right. That's just all I'm saying. He probably had like nine zillion kids. Um, that guy had, a, that guy had like an extra van, you know what I'm talking about, to carry all his kids around. 
Verse 8, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. The days of weeping and mourning for Moses, uh, then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. They probably put the flag on half-mast. It was a presidential thing. It was really cool. Verse 10, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to his land. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed over something. Verse 9, this is the important verse. I'm sorry. Let's go back to that. I was like, man, where's this verse? Verse 9, this is the important one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. We'll skip to verse 12. And all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel... Uh, for all the deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Okay, I butchered that whole last part, but let's get back to the important part. Verse 9. At some point when Moses knew that he was not going to carry the people into the promised land, he did something really important. He found somebody who could be the leader, and he laid hands on him, and he said, you're going to carry the people uh, into the promised land. And he prepared him, and he got him ready, and he set him up to lead well. Moses knew it couldn't be him. So he didn't just go, oh, cool, I'm out, man, and just disappear. Like, hope you guys figure this out. (laughs) Enjoy Jericho and just go on, right? No, Moses found somebody intentionally, strategically set him up, made sure he was ready, made sure, checked with him, had him test lead. He shadowed, he watched, he observed, then he blessed him and said, you can do this. And then he set him up to lead. And Joshua, as we'll see in the future, in future weeks, led the people into the promised land successfully. So what does this mean for us? If we shouldn't be confusing our role now with our role always, then what does that mean practically? I think it means this. Embrace your position, but prepare for transition. Embrace your position, y'all, but you got to prepare for transition. Moses knew what he was about, but he also knew he couldn't be the person for what was coming God let him see that, and so he prepared the people for his transition. He did whatever he had to do to make sure things were ready for the next role that was coming. So what does that look like for us practically? Let's look at it again in ministry, in romance, and in parenting. In ministry, it means we've got to lead with open hands. If you're a life group leader, you lead D groups, you do one-on-ones, you lead city projects, Uh, You're on the worship team, you're a a host for us at the table, maybe you serve on Sunday mornings, maybe you serve in kids ministry, maybe you serve in student ministry, however you serve. What you've got to remember is you've got to lead with open hands. You've got to prepare your people and prepare your own heart for the transition that is inevitably going to come. People everywhere, but especially in Orlando, they're going to come and they're going to go. That's life, especially if you're doing ministry to young people. Natalie and I have been doing ministry uh, to young adults since 2000, okay? So we're, our, our uh, young adult ministry is now in young adult ministry, right? Uh, it's 19. Uh, and so we, we have led life groups in our homes. We've done college ministry. We've done singles ministry. We've done it all. And the one thing that's been constant through all, well, the two things that have been constant through that all is, number one, Jesus is sovereign, and he's great. He's amazing. But number two, it's that young people come in, and we build relationships with them, and then they leave us. And they move to another town, and we cry in our closets uh, as we listen to, like, really angsty music. Like, we just put on Mayday Parade, and we're like, I feel you, Jason. Uh, we just, you know, it's just sad. And it's, it's a happy sadness, I have to say this, because 
Someone will come into our home and Natalie will bond with them and she'll have them over to the house and she'll cook meals for this person, this girl, these girls. And she'll do Bible studies and she'll disciple them and she'll teach them how to pray and she'll teach them how to share their faith and she'll teach them how to integrate ministry into their work and she'll go on trips with them and she'll buy them cars and she'll buy them clothes and she will do all these things for them and then they will get a big girl job and they'll say, hey, I got a job in Atlanta, I got a job in Dallas, I got a job somewhere and they will move and we will hug them as they're leaving Orlando and she'll kiss them on the forehead like they're our own kid and we'll say goodbye and we'll do the mom, Paul and the drive driveways they drive off and then we'll be strong while they're on the street and everything's fine and I'm forcing a smile and then they'll go around the block and we'll go outside and we'll just cry because our baby's all grown up and stuff, right and if we think that our role with them right now is just to be their spiritual parent in Orlando forever when they leave us we will get bitter right we'll be like I can't believe they decided to grow up and mature and make adult decisions What did I disciple them to do? That's right, be emotionally stunted for all of their life so that I can have power over them for my own self-ego. I can't believe that they decided to become mature in the Lord and discover their calling for their life and travel to a far distant city that doesn't have FaceTime so we can't connect with them. Right? No, we would be super bitter and super mad people, right? I love many of you in this room, I'm just kidding, I love all of you in this room, and I hope I get to spend lots of time with every one of you, and my hope and desire for everyone in this room is that you discover what God has uniquely called you to do in this world, and you step into it with purpose, and with resources, and with care, and with a community around you that cheers you on the whole way, and I'm aware just by the statistics that many of you are going to do that in another city, and I'm going to be in Orlando, and I'm not going to be bitter about that, because it's It's what God wants for you. So I have prepared my heart right now that I'm going to enjoy this position and embrace this position as your pastor. But I'm going to lead with open hands. And if God moves you along, I'm preparing my heart now for the transition that is inevitable to come. And that's okay. And I'm going to embrace it. And I'm going to cry for a little bit, just a little bit. And then I'm going to celebrate all the ministry that you guys are going to do in other cities. So... You prepare your hearts by having ministering with open hands. Number two, in dating. How do you embrace your position but prepare for transition in dating? You protect the other person's whole being. You've heard this said, just you got to protect their heart. Guys, protect the girl's heart. Girls, protect his heart. I'm going to go one step further. Protect their whole being. Protect their bodies. Protect their minds, protect their souls. Just, you got to consider the whole being. Why? Because here's the deal. You may be dating them, and that's your role right now. And it may be going really well, and that's your role right now. But until you pull a Beyonce and put a, put a ring on it, okay, they are not your spouse. They are not your mate. And so it is not okay for you to begin mating with them. You see what I'm saying here? Okay? I'm talking about sexual intercourse. Okay? You get that? Uh, you got to protect their bodies. Hey, I don't know that you're my mate. And so although this is my role right now to date you, I don't know that if tomorrow that's going to be my role. So for today, 
as long as it's today, I am not going to get physical with you. I'm not going to have sex. I'm not going to be sexual with you. I'm not going to just go where I shouldn't go. I'm not going to lead you on physically. Secondarily, I'm not going to do that emotionally. And we all have friends who do this, right? They play the I love you game. You start dating somebody, and maybe she's not that into you, or you're not that into them. And you're like, okay, what can I do? What can I do? And you get your friends together, and you like have a blackboard session where you're like, okay, you have like a chalkboard, a whiteboard situation. You're like, okay, what are our strategies here to help her be closer to me? Okay, step one, I could say I love you love you. Hmm, yeah. I think that'll gain me another two weeks here. So let's see. And so you like text and you're like, hey, listen, I got something to tell you. Can we meet? And then you show up and you meet and you have someone in the background playing like epic score music. You're like, listen, I got to tell you something, girl. Right? You automatically kick into an R&B singer, girl. Gotta tell you something. <laughs> right? And right, there's that moment, and you're like, I love you. And she's like, Oh, I didn't know if I loved you, but you said you loved me. I don't know. I'm confused. I gotta think about this. And then you go back to your guys, and you're like, ha, it worked. I got two more weeks out of this, right? That's evil, y'all. But we do this all the time, right? We lead people on, we misrepresent our feelings. Why? Because we want to take crazy glue and put it all over the relationship and hope that our role now is our role forever. No, we can't do this. We got to protect the people we date and their whole being. And we got to enjoy and embrace our position today, but we've got to prepare them for transition because there is a 99% likelihood if you're dating somebody that you're going to break up with them. That's just the statistics of dating. Most people, 99% of the people you date, you are going to break up with. You only marry 1% of the people you date, right? And maybe you find that 1% first, great, until there's a ring on the finger, Don't do anything, right? Just be friends and be cool and try to get to know each other. And then when it's permanent, then you can move on to those other things. But hey, even when you get married and you're married, enjoy your position today, but prepare for transition tomorrow. What does that mean? When you're married, guess what? One of the best things you can do is fill out a will for your mate. One of the best things you can do is get a life insurance policy because just because you're alive today doesn't mean you're going to be alive tomorrow. And you want to make sure your wife or your husband is ready to go. Okay? So you embrace your position today, but you prepare them for tomorrow when you may not be here. Now, I know some of you just are giving me this look. Good God, that's morbid. Like, oh my, why would you ever go there? Because I don't want you guys to be uninformed adults living in the suburbs And you're like, I never thought about this. I want you guys to be wise like Moses wished he would have been the second time he came around to the rock. So in dating, protect their whole being. Finally, when it comes to parenting, raise your kids to release them. Can I just put that plug in now before you guys have kids? Can you raise your kids to send them off? Remember, you are not raising kids. You are raising adults. And I know it's fun today to have the little kids. I know it's great to kind of dictate everything in their lives and to tell them, wipe your bottom and put on your pants and eat this, not that, and all this. But at some point, your kids are going to turn 10 and their will's going to kick in and they're going to push back against you. That is not a time for you to double down. Oh, you thought I was mean when, I was, when you were nine. Just wait now. Ooh, yeah. You're like, the belt doesn't work. Okay, I'm picking up a tree. Here we go. The tree is not working. I'm going to waterboarding like you're... You're, you're calling people uh, at Guantanamo Bay, and you're like, listen, I know we're not supposed to talk to you guys, but can we talk about these things? My kid is out of control, right? You just double down on things. You know who did that? Pharaoh did that. He was a terrible leader. You know who did that? Moses did that. He was a bad leader. You 
embrace where you are parenting your kids today, and then when they're old enough to be adults, you release them into the world with open hands and a little bit of trembling spirit, right? We all know the parents who hung on too long, right, guys? Some of you have those parents who hung on too long. Listen, the problem your parents have is that they're still trying to live their role from yesterday today. And what we got to learn from Moses is our role today may not be our role always. And so I'm going to embrace my position today, but when tomorrow comes and it's a different set of circumstances, I'm going to release my kids to go be adults in the world. I said this before, let me say it again. I deeply desire that everybody in this room would become people who understand how to minister effectively today that you learn how to lead a life group today, that you learn how to disciple people today, that you learn what your ministry is today, that you learn what your calling is today, whether that's uh, in the church or in the, in the marketplace where you're doing whatever, that you would figure this out today, that you would learn to embrace your role for today, but to prepare for tomorrow, and you would learn this lesson today. Why? So that when you move to the suburbs, you're not confused by this. At some point, and I know this sounds weird, many of you guys are going to grow up and maybe get married, maybe not, get a career, whatever, and you're going to move into a home that has an HOA, and you're going to have neighbors, and maybe, Lord willing, you're going to have kids, and you're going to find yourself in your mid-30s living that swag, suburban lifestyle in America, and whatever city you live in. And what I don't want you to be is people who are trying to just control everything, like Will Ferrell with crazy glue, keep your kids under control, keep your ministry under control, keep your job under control, just constantly trying to keep everything permanent the way it is so that you can constantly live in that control environment. I don't want you to be like Moses striking the rock twice. What if you really understood this, that your role now is not your role always? And that what if you learned to embrace your position, but you in every way prepared your relationships for transition, your kids for transition, your ministry for transition, the people who work on your team for transition. And what if you live this way day in and day out? I think what we would find is people who live in the suburbs, adults, when you're there, the kind of people who do ministry in the neighborhoods, that your neighbors would see you and they would go, you live differently. I'm over here trying to control my 16-year-old who's out of control. Your teenager, meanwhile, is the best teenager I've ever seen in the world. What is it you do differently? And you say, man, I learned from Moses and I have Jesus on my side. And Jesus has taught me how to do ministry and to love people graciously. And I think that's it. It's just all because of Jesus. And your neighbor's like, I don't know if I wanna get into religion, but whatever you have, I want that. I want you guys to be unleashed in the suburbs one day, doing ministry wherever you go. Now, with that being said, let me mention this. I mentioned that most of us have this longing for permanence. We wish everything could be the same all the time, all the time, under our control. And here's why I think that is. What we are longing for is not actually in this life. It's in the life to come. One day we will have permanence and it will be in heaven. But between now and then, we're gonna have to get used to the fact that God is always doing a new thing. And so the best thing we can do is learn to follow him every step of the way, every season of the way, and every role he has us in. And not be like Moses and harden our hearts to what he's doing today, but embrace our role and embrace our permanence and prepare in our hearts for transition tomorrow. Let me pray for us. Jesus I pray that you would help us to understand this principle in Moses' life. Thank you for the way he lived. 
Thank you for the way he led. Thank you for the way he led poorly so we could see that. And thank you for the way you graciously redeemed his life there at the end, letting him see the promised land. God, in the way that we date, in the way that we do ministry, in the way that we parent one day, in the way that we interact with our parents today, in every role, in everything, in every season, Jesus, please just make this group of people, these fine singers, make them in the kind of people who embrace what you're doing today and prepare for tomorrow, for your glory, for their good, and for good of this city that we love and every future city you're going to send them to and you're going to scatter them to. It's in your name we pray. Amen.